Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, February 6th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. Survey input is behind some regent guidance on diversity. ISU forbids compelling anyone to provide preferred pronouns. This is by Vanessa Miller. Responding to 10 diversity, equity, and inclusion-related recommendations that the Board of Regents issued in November to its universities, Iowa State University has barred anyone on campus from compelling students, employees, applicants, or visitors to disclose their pronouns. While the full implementation plan is not due to the Regents until April, the university is taking initial steps, according to the ISU directive. Students, faculty, and staff may choose to voluntarily disclose their own pronouns to another individual, but it is not a requirement. Neither ISU nor the Universities of Iowa or Northern Iowa have or ever had policies requiring students, employees, applicants, or visitors disclose their preferred pronouns. As to why, then, a board, DEI study group, included among its 10 recommendations, one barring compelled disclosure, regents reported receiving feedback and anecdotal evidence of situations when students, employees, or visitors on campuses were asked to provide information regarding their personal use of pronouns in ways that made them uncomfortable. We went to an official U of I function and were supposed to put pronoun stickers on our name tags, wrote one of the thousands of respondents who answered an open-ended regent survey question seeking general comments about DEI programming across Iowa's public universities. Many employees refused to apply them. That anonymous respondent wrote, I refused. That is a controversial idea that does not need university endorsement. This is Iowa, not California. Regent President Mike Richards in March 2023 formed a study group of three board members, David Barker, Jim Lindenmayer, and Greta Rouse, after the Iowa legislature passed a law requiring the board conduct a comprehensive study of DEI efforts across its campuses. That law ordered the campuses to cease all hiring related to the institution's diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, and Richards ordered them to pause implementation of any new DEI programs following sharp criticism from Republican legislators in the 2023 session. Just the top DEI staff at our regent universities, those four positions alone, just four people, account for about $750,000 in salaries, Representative Taylor Collins, a Republican of Minneapolis, said during a 2023 subcommittee meeting. If you account for the staff underneath them and their departmental budgets, we're talking about millions. Millions of taxpayer dollars that are being used to push an ideological agenda and not focus on academic excellence. In February 2023, the Regent Universities reported employing a total of 129 faculty and staff working full-time in DEI, with Collins criticizing the three campuses for spending a combined $9.7 million on the efforts annually. As part of the Regent's subsequent study, the board in November reported to lawmakers a total of 142 full- and part-time DEI-related staffers across the three campuses making a combined $13.3 million in compensation. The board also posted to its website a feedback form, and more than 8,400 people responded. Of those, 7,461 were students, faculty, or staff. The rest were alumni, parents, employers, members of the public, 
and government officials. To a survey question of whether the university's mandatory DEI programs excuse me, emphasize a particular political agenda, 3,289 people responded, with 2,573 saying no and 716 saying yes. DEI has become synonymous with a leftist agenda, one respondent wrote, according to 422 pages of anonymous answers the regents provided. The DEI programs are not doing anything wrong, another person wrote. I support them, and I'm a Republican. Some survey responses either criticized or supported the pair of regent study group recommendations that barred mandatory pronoun disclosure and any requirements that employees or applicants submit a DEI statement or be evaluated based on participation in DEI initiatives. Efforts have become excessive, such as including required personal DEI statements as part of annual professional reviews and application material for faculty candidates, one person wrote. Another person highlighted a Path to Distinction document the UI Executive Vice President and Provost's Office produced in August 2021, aimed at centering faculty search and recruitment strategies around DEI goals. It focuses almost exclusively on DEI, the survey respondent wrote. There is little discussion of other hiring considerations. In fact, it goes so far as to suggest discounting traditional measures to evaluate candidates. A bullet point on job candidate interviews advises committees to include questions about commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion during distance interviews and on-campus interviews. We are required to invite at least one female candidate to visit campus as part of our search for a tenure-track faculty member, a survey respondent wrote. Candidates should be selected based on their abilities, qualifications, and experiences. Gender and race should not be a factor. As to the pronoun recommendation, several raise concerns. They pressure untenured staff to jump on the transgender bandwagon and attach pronouns in their email names and signatures, one person wrote. Us, them, they pronouns are used for a singular person, another wrote. Aren't we teaching institutions? This isn't even proper English. Still, some commentators, excuse me, some commenters expressed a need for respectful pronoun use. Asking about pronouns should be encouraged, one person said, as did another member of the LGBTQ community. I have felt a recent lack of respect from both staff and students regarding pronouns and my identity due to the culture shifts in U.S. politics, the common commenter, <laughs> commenter wrote. DEI is not a political agenda. It is an ethical principle that our institutions cannot bypass. Other recommendations, which the campuses are working to implement and will report back to the Regents on in April, include restructuring their central university-wide DEI offices to eliminate DEI functions that aren't necessary for compliance or accreditation, reviewing all college department or unit-level DEI positions to determine whether the job duties are necessary for compliance or accreditation, and adjust or eliminate any that aren't. Assessing services provided by offices supporting diversity or multicultural affairs to ensure they're available to all students. Issuing employee guidance about separating personal political advocacy from university business and employment activities. Exploring potential recruitment strategies for advancing diversity of intellectual and philosophical perspective in faculty and staff applicant pools and exploring a widespread initiative for creating opportunities for education and research on free speech and civic education. 
Despite the criticism, many respondents expressed strident support for the university's DEI programming. I believe diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and activities at Iowa's public universities are essential to growing and fostering a caring community, one person wrote. These programs teach faculty, staff, students, and the general public about all individuals and how to cultivate communities of belonging, access, and welcoming environments. Our next headline is Inaugural Black History Ball Celebrates Black Culture Community. Black Tie Event in Iowa City features traditional food, live music, and more. This is by Brittany Miller. Music scoped out of the Iowa City Senior Center's assembly room on Saturday night. I'm sorry, I'm going to start that again. Music seeped out of the Iowa City Senior Center's assembly room on Saturday night, featuring a booming trumpet threaded with drums, keyboard, and bass. The rhythmic jazz served as both the entertainment and backdrop for the crowd converging in the room. A mixture of ornate patterns, sparkling sequins, suits, and cultures. The black tie event held on the first weekend of Black History Month was Iowa City's inaugural Black History Ball. More than 100 people gathered to honor black history and celebrate black communities. It's a great way to kick off Black History Month, which we know is all year round, said attendee Yolanda Spears, 54, who is a University of Iowa clinical associate professor in social work. But we're highlighting it today. The Iowa City Senior Center's original Mature Groovers, formerly known as Elders of Color, teamed up with nonprofit Sankofa Outreach Connection to plan the ball in celebration of Iowa's black community. Both groups offer support to people of color, the former for adults over 50 and the latter for women. The food and drinks lining the hall outside the center's assembly room were nearly all catered from vendors who are people of color, said Latasha Del Loach, the center coordinator and Sankofa Outreach Connection co-founder, who led planning for the ball. Traditional black cuisine filled platters ranging from the Puerto Rican dish mofongo to traditional Jamaican jerk chicken. Attendees brought their plates into the assembly room where the, IS, where the IU Stanley Museum of Art displayed seven pieces of artwork that captured a global black visual narrative said Museum Curator of Special Projects, Derek Nuro. Two African textiles adorned one wall with intricate patterns, carved figures, and a mask sat in displays across the room. And another wall held several pages from Hochi Anderson's graphic novels about Martin Luther King Jr. Several speakers addressed the crowd. After an invocation and land acknowledgement, poet and UI English assistant professor Danica Kelly performed an original poem inspired by her family in southern Arkansas and their cultural vernacular. Then the crowd stood to sing the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, commonly referred to as the Black National Anthem. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us, attendees crooned, their voices melding with the soulful band. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Ashley Howard, a UI assistant professor in African American Studies and History, was the ball's keynote speaker. She referenced and quoted black figures such as historian Vincent Harding, activist Malcolm X, artist Aaron Douglas, and singer-songwriter Prince. She spoke of how Iowa's black communities challenged the stereotype that the Midwest is exclusively white and noted how the state's population of black residents is projected to nearly triple by 2060. 
Even so, she said, the region's recounting of black history and the community's modern-day presence is often diminished or erased in mainstream conversation and media, something that must change to accurately represent the identity and humanity of black people in Iowa and beyond. While the inclusion of narratives which challenge dominant Midwestern narrative frames are becoming more frequent, much more work remains to amplify the alternative identities black Iowans create for themselves within these spaces, Howard said in her speech. The time is now to craft loving narratives of black islands, vast, complicated portraits of our humanity. We fight because we know that we are worth fighting for. For the rest of the night, the center's assembly room was flooded with the mesmerizing rhythm of live jazz music. Curtis Taylor, an award-winning trumpeter and UI assistant professor of jazz studies, led the quartet and played alongside fellow UI assistant professor in jazz studies, William Menefield, bassist Jonathan Muir Cotton, and drummer Alexander White. The night was a joyous celebration of black cultures in Iowa and beyond. Attendee Fechi Odacha, 33, recently moved to Iowa from Nigeria to attend Maharishi International University in Fairfield. He attended the Black History Ball to learn more about the African-American experience. I actually wanted to know the history, how black people in America live and how they've been able to achieve, he said. It's actually different from black Africans. It's more emotional. They are telling the story that their fathers told them, their grandparents told them. Most of the proceeds from the ball's ticket sales and silent auction, where paintings and masks were up for bidding, will go towards sending the original Mature Groovers group on a trip to learn more about the Underground Railroad, a Civil War-era network that helped fugitive slaves escape to free states and Canada. This very much feels like a beginning, Howard said about the ball as she closed her keynote. When I think of this ball next year, I'm also thinking, what are the stories that we will tell each other a year from now? Brittany J. Miller is the energy and environment reporter for the Gazette and a core member with Report for America. And now I'm going to turn to the government notes. Sixth Cedar Rapids City Department wins accreditation. Also, United Way is making appointments for free tax preparation. Cedar Rapids now has six accredited city departments. The Code Enforcement Division is the city's Building Services Department, is the latest department to win accreditation, the ninth agency in the nation to attain the distinction. The five other accredited departments are Fire, Police, Parks and Recreation, Public Works, and the Public Library. Accreditation, similar to that achieved by colleges and hospitals, is a lengthy process and attaining it is a badge of professionalism and accomplishment. Six departments within a municipal government to have earned accredited agency status is a rare feat, City Manager Jeff Pomerantz said in a statement. Accreditation serves as a valuable resource for our departments and the entire city in delivering the highest standard of professional and accountable services to our community, he said. This accomplishment reflects the dedication and commitment of our skilled staff to improve the quality of life in Cedar Rapids and serve our residents. In attaining accreditation, the Code Enforcement Division met or exceeded 50 scoring standards set by the American Association of Code Enforcement in administration, professional development, enforcement, case management, and other categories. It tied for the top score in the nation among accredited agencies earning a four-star accreditation. The division has five code enforcement officers, seven rental housing inspectors, 
an administrative assistant, and a code enforcement manager. It began the accreditation process in early 2023. The division created a code enforcement policy and procedure manual at Code of Ethics and of Conduct and a field training manual to promote equitable code enforcement. All code enforcement staff are certified by the International Code Council in the International Property Maintenance Code, which is the foundation for the city's own housing and property maintenance code. Accreditation attests to our Code Enforcement Division's commitment to delivering excellent services for Cedar Rapids, Building Services Director Kevin Chibati said. A four-star rating recognizes our staff's hard work and adherence to industry standards, he said. It also reflects our ongoing efforts to safeguard the community's health, safety, and welfare. I am proud to work alongside such talented colleagues who contribute daily to improve our community. During the accreditation process, city staff developed 51 new policies and procedures, including obtaining consent and securing a warrant, standardizing photographic evidence, creating administrative citations, and investigation of unregistered rental properties. This process demonstrated the organizational health of our city government, Code Enforcement Manager Greg Bulow said in a statement. We had outstanding support from numerous city departments in making our successful accreditation application. Accreditation is about the process and affecting change, enhancing professionalism, and improving organizational efficiency and effectiveness. This was a significant team-building exercise and learning experience that will position the Code Enforcement Division to excel over the next several years. Training set for Iowa City Climate Ambassadors the Iowa City Climate Ambassador Training Program is seeking applicants who want to become local climate action leaders. The program is intended to empower effective climate change leaders within the Iowa City community. As local leaders, ambassadors will learn about client science and effective communication strategies, meet others engaged in climate action, build channels of communication between neighbors, community groups, businesses, city leadership and staff, and fellow residents. Act on these lessons through personal commitments and volunteer opportunities. Inspire others to take climate action. Ambassadors participate in an eight-week course that involves a mix of online, self-paced learning modules, and weekly group meetings with fellow trainees. The first meeting will take place on Zoom. Other meetings will take place in person at city buildings. Meetings are scheduled for 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Thursdays. The training runs from March 7th to April 18th with a break on April 11th. Group meetings last between one and a half and two hours. The meetings will be guided by staff from the city's Climate Action and Outreach Division. Ambassadors can expect to spend two to three hours per week on training activities. The program will take applicants through February 18th. To learn more and to apply, visit the Climate Ambassadors page on the city's website, IC gov.org. If not selected for the upcoming training session, applicants will be alerted when the next application window opens in case they would like to reapply. Voting set to begin for Linmar Marion Peppel, PPEL. Requests now are being accepted from residents in the Linmar and Marion Independent School Districts ahead of the special election March 5th on renewing the school district's physical plant and equipment levy. Voters wishing to receive an absentee ballot must complete a request form found at lynncountyiowa.gov 
backslash 842 slash 7130 slash vote dash by dash mail. All ballot requests must be received by the Lynn County Auditor's Office by 5 p.m. February 19th. Compiled ballots must be returned to the Auditor's Office or ballot drop box before the polls close at 8 p.m. Election Day to be counted. In-person absentee voting will begin February 14th at the Auditor's Office at 935 2nd Street Southwest during regular business hours and end at 5 p.m. March 4th. Voters need to show a valid ID before casting their ballot. Polls will open at 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. March 5th. Voters can find their polling locations online at sos.iowa.gov elections. On the ballot is the renewal of Linmar and Marion School District's Physical Plant and Equipment Levy, or PEPL. The levy re- provides the districts with funds that can be used only for infrastructure and equipment repairs, purchases, and improvements. Linmar and Marion School Districts each have had voter-approved PEPL in place for more than a decade. If the measures are approved in March, PEPL would be extended through 2035 at the existing rate of $1.34 per $1,000 of taxable property value. More than 83% of Iowa schools rely on a PEPL to provide funds to address projects such as roof repairs, HVAC system maintenance, school security, and transportation upgrades. A PEPL must be renewed every 10 years by a school district's voters for it to continue. United Way Offering Tax Preparation Assistance United Way of East Central Iowa has opened its Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Center and is making appointments over the phone. Appointments are made on the first-come, first-served basis by calling 319-382-5685, Monday through Thursday. That's 319-382-5685. To be eligible for the free service, people must be a resident of Lynn, Jones, Benton, Cedar, or Iowa counties, and earning less than $64,000 per year as an individual or family. Last year, VITA volunteers donated more than 500 hours and filed more than 200 refunds, according to United Way. And that's the end of the government notes. Our next story, Toledo faces fourth excessive force lawsuit related to former officer. This is by Clark Kaufman. The city of Toledo is facing a fourth federal lawsuit tied to the alleged actions of one former police officer. Last year, Toledo city officials publicly condemned one of their police officers, Kyle Howe, for multiple instances of excessive force. Howe resigned in the midst of an internal investigation that involved a review of various body camera videos involving several individuals he had arrested. In September, two separate lawsuits were filed against Howe and the city of Toledo in U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Iowa, each alleging false arrest, assault, battery, negligent supervision, and civil rights violations. In November, a third lawsuit was filed in federal court on behalf of 72-year-old Stephen Horrigan of Chelsea, alleging battery, excessive force, false arrest, assault, and negligent supervision and training. Last week, with those three lawsuits still pending, a fourth lawsuit was filed against Howe and the city. The news case was filed on behalf of Cynthia McSweeney of Tama, who alleges that on March 12, 2022, Howe and fellow Toledo police officer Anthony Rodriguez 
went to her home to investigate an alleged theft by her son. After McSweeney observed her son being arrested, she allegedly asked how, what if I would like to press charges against blank, at which point Howe allegedly cut her off, grabbed her right arm, and told her, you're going to jail too. The lawsuit claims Howe violently forced McSweeney to the ground, breaking her glasses and bruising her body. Howe's use of force was excessive as Cynthia was not aggressive or resisting arrest, the lawsuit alleges. The lawsuit seeks unspecified damages for civil rights violations, false arrest, battery, assault, negligent supervision, and training and abuse of process. How in the city have yet to file a response to the lawsuit? Okay, I'm going to go to the uh, insight section, opinion section, and read the community letters. Our first letter is from Corbin Sexton of Iowa City. New Iowa AD should end live raptors at games. Although my husband and I watch from home, our enthusiasm matches that of the fans in Carver Hawkeye Arena during Iowa women's basketball games. During the recent Wisconsin game, when our spirits had been boosted by the ever-expanding lead of the Hawkeyes over the Badgers, the camera suddenly cut away from the court to a close-up of someone attending the game against his or her will. A live raptor. My heart sank. What is the thinking behind subjecting a wild bird to an environment that could not be any less like its natural habitat? The roar of the crowd, the periodic buzzers, the multicolored flashing lights, these elements make for a joyous experience for fans packed into a sold-out arena and for the thousands watching from home, but for the lone raptor, a different story. No amount of training or time in captivity can prepare a sentient, sentient creature from the wild for such a sensory overload. What elevates us, the tidal wave of cheers, chants, and dynamic music, can be excruciating for these birds. What is on view is not a respect for these majestic beings, but a disregard, however innocent or well-meaning, for their nature, inflicting pain to entertain. As Beth Getz embraces her new role as permanent athletic director at the University of Iowa, I hope she will bring this practice to a close at Carver Hawkeye, at Kinnick, anywhere our athletes engage in competitions, exhibitions, or promotional events. And again, that was from Corbin Sexton of Iowa City. Our next letter, would Iowans call for a national religion? Being overwhelmed by unrelenting television news focused on the 2024 election, I explored the PBS series American Experience, specifically the episode titled Nazi Town USA, focused on fascist movements in the United States. Both the election coverage and the documentary made me think about our Bill of Rights. Given the chance, would a majority of today's Iowans choose to suspend alter or eliminate the First Amendment's Establishment Clause that prohibits the government from making laws respecting an establishment of religion? Or would they prefer the formalization of Christianity as the national religion? Would the U.S. becoming a Christian theocracy be a bad thing? Is freedom of speech still a good idea given the diverse nature of our population? Wouldn't life be simpler with the three television networks of old or, better still, with the establishment of a single media source to inform and educate the citizenry. Wouldn't a single devout voice speaking for all of us be preferable to the confusing babble we have now? Wouldn't a return to prayer in public schools be an antidote to the woke indoctrination? Exposed, excuse me, to the woke indoctrination children are exposed to? Wouldn't England v. Vitale, the Supreme Court case eliminating organized prayer in public schools in 1962, have a different, more Bible-based outcome if argued in front of today's justices? 
These are some of the questions the senior citizen thought of after watching too much TV. One unsettling quote from Nazi Town continues to haunt me. There's no such thing as foreign fascism. Fascism is always homegrown. And that letter was from Mark McCoy of Cedar Rapids. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, February 6th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Cheryl Ann Chichau, T-E-C-H-A-U, 79 of Cedar Rapids, passed away Thursday, February 1st at home with her family by her side. Services will be at 11 a.m. Friday, February 9th at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Inurnment will be at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery, a luncheon to follow at Cedar Memorial Family Center. Sherry was born August 27, 1944, in Cedar Rapids, the daughter of Grant and Lois Stewart Longenbaugh. She met Alan, her husband, of 58 years, while attending Washington High School. They were united in marriage on June 12, 1965, in Cedar Rapids. Sherry was a loving mother and wife, full of joy, kindness, and generosity. She loved gardening, antiques, and needlework, but above all else, she loved being with her family and friends. Survivors include her husband, Alan, her sons, Hunter, of Athol, Idaho, Walker of Waconia, Minnesota, her grandchildren, Storm, Ember, Liam, and Avery Tichow, and great-granddaughter, Calliope Tichow. Also surviving is her sister, Bonnie Banks, of Okanomowoc, Wisconsin. She was preceded in death by her parents and a brother-in-law, Mac Banks. Mert Alpers of Vinton was 89 when he died at home surrounded by family on Friday, February 2nd. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday, February 7th at Trinity Lutheran Church in Vinton with the Reverend Stephen Pruce officiating. Interment will be held at Evergreen Cemetery with lunch to follow. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. on Tuesday at Phillips Funeral Home at 212 East 6th Street. Mert Alpers was born January 6, 1935, arriving as the sixth child of John and Elta Paulson Alpers of Van Horn. In life and in death, he was preceded by brothers Dale and Don and sisters Helen Cussell, Leona Bunton, and Iona Inman, still living as Iona's husband, Dick. Unions and births brought him the joy of being Uncle Mert of beloved nieces and nephews, all surviving except Dwayne Alpers and Betty Cottrell, a co-worker at the Cedar Valley Times where Merle worked for 30 years. He married Claudette Stover on June 24, 1956. Their early lives were devoted to daughters Lou Carr of Vinton and Joe Roths of Stevensville, Montana, and in later years to their four grandchildren, Austin Carr of Denver, Colorado, Maggie Mangold of Vinton, Shauna Fessler of Lola, Montana, and Tana Hayward of Stevensville, Montana. Mert was the proud great-grandfather of Charlotte and Stella Carr, Hugh Reed and Theo Mangold, Liam Brinley and Braxton Fessler, and Jacob and Jonas Hayward, who remember him as funny, loving, and kind. Mert was most happy when his faith in God, nourished throughout his lifelong connection to the people and traditions of Trinity Lutheran Church, became a faith of service to others that was boundless in compassion, 
intensely caring, and infused with the warmth of friendship. His ministry was evident in the many years of volunteering at the Palace Theater, caring for those suffering the pain of loss, while working at Philip's funeral home, and his professed favorite job of all, tending the needs of the ill and injured while working as a valet at Virginia Gay Hospital. Mert's life was a ministry of love for everyone, offered with laughter in his voice and a twinkle of impending mischief in his eye. Jerry L. Wharton, 73, of Mount Auburn, passed away on Monday, January 29th, in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, with his children and close friends by his side. Per his wishes, a celebration of life will be held at a later date. Jerry was born May 12, 1950, in Dubuque, to Don and Betty Heine Wharton. He graduated from Marion High School in 1968. Jerry worked as a skilled tradesman. He framed houses for many years, worked in the gas industry, and was a project superintendent and manager, and was a jack-of-all-trades. Jerry was an all-around handyman, making many projects around his cabin and for friends and family. Jerry was a maker of memories for the friends he made everywhere he went. He loved to travel, spent time on the water, and was never short of a good joke. He will be greatly missed by all who knew him. Jerry is survived by his daughter, Kelly Albones, son, Jeremy Wharton, grandchildren, Zach Wharton, Joe Seaman, and Glennon Larson Wharton, great-grandchild, Wyatt Wharton, and many dear friends. He was preceded in death by his parents, Don and Betty Wharton. Nancy Elizabeth Plate, 86, of Iowa City, died peacefully Friday, February 2nd, surrounded by her loving family. Funeral services will be held at 10 a.m. Wednesday, February 7th, at Lensing Funeral and Cremation Service in Iowa City. The Reverend Heechion Yeon will officiate. Visitation will be Tuesday from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. at the funeral home. Entombment will be in the Memory Gardens Mausoleum. Marvin Roy MacArthur of Walker was 79 when he died Friday, February 2nd. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, February 6th at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Centerpoint. A funeral service will take place at 10.30 a.m. on Wednesday, February 7th at First Christian Church in Cedar Point. Burial will follow at Cedar Point Cemetery. Marvin was born February 3, 1944 in rural Lynn County, the son of James and Marie Wickham, MacArthur. He graduated from Centerpoint Consolidated High School, class of 1962. Marvin was united in marriage to Linda Ann Johnson on June 4, 1966, at First Christian Church. He worked as a farmer and then for the Lynn County Road Department for 34 years. Marvin was a member of First Christian Church. Marvin enjoyed cattle farming, hunting, fishing, gardening, and bonfires. He loved tinkering, around, tinkering around, canning, playing cards with his family, and watching his grandchildren play sports. A special thank you to his nieces and nephews that shared cherished times with him. Marvin's, Marvin's greatest time was spent with his family. Survivors include his children, Annette Cole of Walker, Christine Carter of Tipton, and Jeffrey MacArthur of Centerpoint. Grandchildren Tyler Cole, Courtney Smith, Tessa Cole, Brandon MacArthur, Tally Cole, and Gavin MacArthur. Great-grandchild Juniper MacArthur and siblings Jeanette Shoals of Walker and Joan Mab of Wisconsin. 
He was preceded in death by his wife Linda, parents James and Marie MacArthur, and brother Melvin MacArthur. Charles Chuck Urban of Omaha, Nebraska, was aged 84 when he passed away peacefully at home with his family nearby on February 1st. He bravely fought bladder cancer for the past year. Survivors include his children Terry Urban of Omaha, Mick Urban of Topeka, and Brent Urban of Omaha. In addition, three grandsons, Brandon Urban, Andrew Urban, and Ian Urban, all of Omaha. Nieces Kristen Schmitz and Laura Thompson, and six great-grandchildren who brought Chuck so much joy. Also, dear friends Carrie and Jim Maxson, the Heinz 57s, and so many loved relatives and friends throughout the country. Chuck was preceded in death by his parents, sister Jackie and wife Janice, in 2018. At his request, Chuck will be cremated, though it will not be a formal service. Jonathan Patrick Reek, R-E-E-C-K, of Iowa City. A bright light was extinguished with the passing of Jonathan Patrick Reek, John Bovie, on January 23rd, John was born May 15, 1979, in Des Moines. His legacy will live within the lives of everyone with whom he shared his kindness and good humor. John began his life in Dexter, Iowa, moving to Creston at age five. He was a graduate of St. Malachi School and Creston Senior High School. Beginning at age 14, John worked part-time at Hy-Vee and later at Walmart, where he always provided great service with a smile. In 1998, John experienced a major medical event that threatened his life and set his life on a new trajectory. He survived, spending five months in a coma, followed by 18 months of intense therapy at On With Life in Ankeny, where he made great strides. We like to think his survival was due partly to the Irish fight in him. He loved and was loved by many who helped him live his best life for 25 years. He was a resident of Iowa City for the past 20 years. In high school, John was passionate about choir, speech, and theater. He continued his love of music and knew the lyrics of just about every heavy metal, 90s alternative, and pop song, as well as many other genres. He could hear a song once and memorize the lyrics and often had a pair of headphones on his head jamming out to his favorite tunes. Never shy, John made many friends over his lifetime, and he loved to make people laugh, and you knew you were in his inner circle if he gave you a nickname. Most nicknames were PG, but a few were a bit more ornery in true John fashion. Survivors include his parents, Peggy and Rob Peggy Mullen and Rob Dietrich, sister Jennifer Sporl and their daughters, John's beloved nieces, Laura, Sarah, and Emma, sister Lynn Nunley, stepsister Amy Eilers, and their children Joe and Sean, stepsister Karen Girth, and their children Katie and Tyler, his birth father Patrick Reek, and numerous aunts, uncles, and cousins. He was preceded in death by his grandparents, Don and Pat Mullen, and Norma excuse me, Norman and Josephine Reek. John is also survived by his best friend and caregiver of over 15 years, Yaya Diop, and very special friend, Katricia Harbach. John's support needs were provided by Systems Unlimited, Incorporated. A celebration of life will take place on Saturday, February 10th, at Lensing Funeral Home with visitation from 2 to 4 p.m. with a service immediately following. Services will be live-streamed and casual dresses encouraged. A Jonathan Reek Memorial Fund has been established and will be designated to causes close to his heart. Robert Bob Burtis, 93 of Cedar Rapids, passed away on February 1st at the Old Dorf Hospice House in Hiawatha. Rosary, it will be at 4 p.m. Thursday, February 8th, 
with a visitation from 4.30 to 7 p.m. at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services in Cedar Rapids. Funeral Mass will be at 10 a.m. Friday, February 9th at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids with Father Aaron Jungi officiating. Burial will be followed at St. John Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. Those unable to attend are invited to watch the rosary and or service via live stream. Please find the live stream link on Bob's tribute wall and share your support and memories with his family. Bob was born November 29, 1930 in Cedar Rapids, son of Edmund and Marie Elbert Burtis. He graduated from St. Joseph High School in 1948 in Mason City and enlisted in the Navy in 1949, where he was honorably discharged in 1956. He married Barbara Rothamel on February 16, 1954. Bob worked as a meat cutter for Eagle Supermarket until they closed in 2003. He was a devoted member to Immaculate Conception Catholic Church, where he volunteered his time as a reader for daily mass and various volunteer work. He enjoyed fishing and watching sports, especially the Chicago Cubs, Iowa Hawkeyes, and Chicago Bears. Bob is survived by his children, Karen Issa, Craig Burtis, and David Burtis. Grandchildren, Lila Issa, Dina Issa, Alaya Burtis, Megan Burtis, Muhammad Issa, and, I'm sorry, Mahmoud Issa, and Zachariah Issa, and great-grandchildren, Selena Shayada, Eliana Shayada, Daniela Kaloff, Sophia Diab, Juliet Diab, Adam Issa, and Amir Issa. He was preceded in death by his parents, wife Barbara Burtis, and sons Colin Burtis and Brian Burtis. Barry Allen Anderson, 75, of Anamosa, died Saturday, January 27th at Harmony House in Cedar Rapids. Funeral services will be at 12.30 p.m. Saturday, February 10th, at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Anamosa. The Reverend Rodney Blummel will officiate. The family will greet friends from 10.30 a.m. to the time of service at the church. Military honors will be accorded by the United States Navy and the Anamosa Veterans Honor Guard. Please visit getsonline.com to share your thoughts, memories, and condolences. Larry J. Williams, 87, of Wyoming, passed away peacefully on Saturday, February 3rd, at the Clarence Senior Living in Clarence, Iowa. A visitation will be held at the Calkins Barn in Wyoming on Friday, February 9th, from 3 to 6 p.m. His funeral service will be held at 6 p.m. on Friday at the Calkins Barn in Wyoming. Burial will be at a later date at the Wyoming Cemetery. Dawson Funeral Services of Wyoming is caring for his family. Larry J. was born on, Mar I'm sorry, on May 24, 1936 in Iowa City to Leland and Lula Ripperton Williams. He graduated from Olin High School in 1954. On September 1, 1956, he was united in marriage to the love of his life, Kathleen Brady, in Anamosa. Larry owned and operated Larry's Beauty Shop in Wyoming for over 60 years. He was a proud volunteer of the Wyoming Fire Department and the Midland Ambulance for many years. Larry was a member of the Little Bear Country Club in Wyoming and the Cedar Valley Coon Hunters Association in Anamosa. His greatest blessings in life were his wife, children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. He adored spending time with each and every one of them. He was an avid hunter, fisher, and trapper of all kinds. He loved playing basketball, watching the Iowa Hawkeyes, golfing, and going for golf cart rides with his pal Herky. Those left to cherish his memory are his three children, Terry Williams, Kim Buckholtz, Mike Williams, all of Wyoming. 
six grandchildren, and ten great-grandchildren. He was preceded in death by his parents' wife Kathleen, sister Helen McMillian, and six brothers, Gail, Lyle, Wayne, Blair, Gerald, and Ronnie Williams. Sherry Louise Crisp, 80, of Menifee, California, and Tipton, Iowa, quietly took her last breath on January 23rd while sleeping in her own bed. Funeral services will be held on Tuesday, February 6th at 11 a.m. at the Fry Funeral Home in Tipton, with Pastor Carrie Sandusky officiating with visitation from 9 to 11 a.m. prior to the service. Burial will follow in the Tipton Masonic Cemetery. Sherry was born on October 12, 1943, and was the daughter of Calvin Moore and Ellen Lair Moore. Sherry graduated from Tipton High School in 1962. Sherry was united in marriage to Elias Bud Carr Crisp, and they were looking forward to 47 years of marriage on March 18th of this year, 2024. Sherry and Bud are residents of Menifee, California, and Tipton, Iowa. After working in the construction industry for a number of years, she decided to enroll in school to study federal and state tax laws. In 1987, after graduating, she decided to start her own business, which became C.L. Crisp Account and Tax Associates. Sherry was highly successful and respected and ran her company for 32 years. Sherry is survived by her husband, Bud Crisp of Menifee, California, her two sons, Bart Miller of Clarence and Darren Miller of Tipton, grandchildren, Ashley Carrion, Melissa Jackson, Brittany Kinsel, Kyle Miller, and A.J. Miller, plus six great-grandchildren. Sherry is also survived by her and Bud's adopted family in Menifee, California, who are Dave and Karen Bradshaw and their children, Crystal Edmonds, Matt and Gabby Bradshaw, and Stephen Bradshaw, and Sarah Flores, plus two great-grandchildren. She was preceded in death by her parents, Calvin and Ellen Moore, and her brother, Douglas Moore. Doris May Achebach Howe, 94 of Tipton, passed away on Friday, February 2nd, while under the care of Prairie Hills Assisted Living in Tipton. Funeral services will be held on Wednesday, February 7th at 10.30 a.m. at Fry Funeral Home in, in Tipton with the Reverend Ronald Lashmit officiating. Burial will follow in the Shaver Cemetery in Cedar Bluff, Iowa. Visitation for Doris will be on Tuesday, February 6th from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. at Fry Funeral Home. Online condolences may be shared at fryfuneralhome.com. Doris was born on November 27, 1929, in Cedar County. She was the daughter of Charlie Alexander Achenbach, Achenbach and Nellie Irene Mason Achenbach. From grades 1 through 8, Doris attended Cass No. 2 and Lynn No. 1 country schools, and then spent grades 9 through 12 at Tipton Community School. On February 28, 1953, Doris was united in marriage to Wilson Dean Howe in the Little Brown Church at Nashua. Together, they worked on their farm and raised their four children. Doris was very talented. She spent time sewing, quilting, crocheting, and baking collages. Doris loved dancing and fishing and would often have fish fries for family and friends. She and Wilson loved to spend their winters in Texas. Surviving are her four children, Harlan Howe, Janet Wethington, Diana Zack, and Lori Gook. Grandchildren, Julie Birch Birchter. Kyle Zack, Nicole Zack, Logan Howe, Austin Howe, and Kaylin Moore, 18 great-grandchildren and one on the way. Doris was preceded in death by her parents, 
husband Wilson Howe, her son-in-law Dennis Rugenberg, and her infant granddaughter and grandson Owen Birchter. Okay, and now we're going to turn to the sports page. And I'm going to start with what is on television today in sports. In the NBA, the Warriors are at the Nets at 6.30 p.m. on NBA TV. In men's basketball, Miami is at Virginia at 6 p.m. on ESPN. Kansas at Kansas State at 8 p.m. on ESPN. And Southern at Jackson State at 8 p.m. on ESPN2. In women's basketball, we have Minnesota at Michigan State at 5 p.m. on BTN. Louisville at North Carolina State at 6 p.m. on ESPN2. And Illinois at Purdue at 7 p.m. on BTN. Pro soccer today, Brentford versus Manchester City at 2 p.m. on USA. Okay, we'll read some of the sports stories. And girls wrestling. We've got Dix sets Mustang program standard. Coach, she is first of many state champions to come. This is by Riley Cole. Out of Coralville, go get them, win. That was the message Mount Vernon's Libby Dix got from her dad, Justin, who also wrestled for the Mustangs and Cornell College before her 190-pound finals match on Friday night. It's a ritual the father-daughter duo goes through before each wrestling match or tournament. Justin helps with analyzing her opponents, setting the tone for the match, and encouraging Libby to wrestle at her best. The sport has bonded the two, and Libby is quick to admit the impact he's had on her wrestling career. He's my biggest role model, Libby said. He gets me prepared with what I need to do. He's the reason I'm the wrestler that I am. On Friday night, Libby was a 190-pound state champion after pinning West Lions' Jana Turwe with one second to spare in the match at 5 minutes 59 seconds. The pin in her finals match capped off a dominant state tournament run. Dix stuck all her opponents en route to her title. I pinned my way through the tournament, and that's huge for me, she said. Once I get a girl on her back, my coaches and I believe it's over. It was super cool. Pinning her way through was no easy feat, as the 190-pound weight class was one of the toughest in the tournament. As the number four seed, Dix had to take out two of the top three seeds to stand atop the podium. Bella Porcelli of Southeast Polk was the top seed, Turwee was number two, and Decora's Cameron Steins was third. Libby faced Porcelli in the semifinals and put her to her back in 4 minutes 52 seconds, which put her in the finals against Turwee. I think I had the hardest draw, Dix said. You have to wrestle and beat everyone to come out on top. That's what I did. Dix got her taste of the finals last season when she faced Decora's Naomi Simon who became Iowa's first four-time girls wrestling state champion on Friday night. But last year, it was Simon who was crowned the 170-pound state champ with a fall in 1 minute 35 seconds. Mount Vernon coach Trevor Trendy believes that loss may have set a foundation for Dix's junior season. I think that loss really lit a fire in Libby this past offseason and preseason, Trendy said. She really bought into what it takes to be a champion and doing stuff outside of practice. She's the first one in the room and is our hardest worker. She's also the last one to leave. With her victory, Dix will have her name etched on the wall in the Mount Vernon Wrestling Room. Maroon represents state qualifiers. Gray denotes a state placer. Black signifies a state champion. I get my name in black, Libby said. For her being remembered, for her being remembered as one of Mount Vernon's state wrestling champions is a surreal accomplishment. 
one she is beyond proud of and will never forget. It's so cool to be a part of this and compete against these amazing wrestlers, Libby said. Iowa is known for wrestling, and this tournament is huge to win. I'm super grateful that I came out on top. Trendy is optimistic that while Dix is the first to win a girls' state wrestling title for the Mustangs, she certainly won't be the last. We have a strong wrestling community at Mount Vernon, Trendy said. A lot of girls back home watched her in the finals and saw her get her hand raised. It's the first of many to come for Mount Vernon. Here are a few of the sideline articles. In women's gymnastics, Iowa Falls to Nebraska at home. Out of Coralville, sophomores Emily Erb and Bailey Libby hit near-perfect routines on floor Sunday as the 27th-ranked Iowa women's gymnastics team fell short to Nebraska, 196.500 to 195.725. Inside Extreme Arena, Erb captured the event with a career-high 9.950, and Libby tied for second with a 9.900, matching her career best. Sophomore Karina Munez took second overall on vault and tied with sophomore Gianna Masella for second place on bars. Junior Alexa Ebeling also secured a spot in the top two in the team rotation. Reigning Big Ten co-freshman of the week, Ava Volpe, once again, bettered her career best in the all-around, posting a 39.200. I don't like to lose, but I am not mad about our performance, Coach Larissa Libby said. We got beat by a stronger team today, and I'm okay with that. In college wrestling, UNI scores big win over number 17, West Virginia, out of Cedar Falls. A last-second takedown at 174 pounds and a sudden victory at heavyweight stirred number 18 Northern Iowa to a 26-12 dual win over number 17 West Virginia on Sunday inside the McLeod Center. UNI evened its overall record at 5-5 five and, five and improved to 4-1 against Big 12 challengers with three bonus point victories to improve to 8-0 all-time against the Mountaineers, including 5-0 under head coach Doug Schwab. Seventh-ranked Kale Heppel, a former Lisbon prep, improved to 3-0 at 141 pounds with an 11-3 win over number 10 Jordan Titus. Top-ranked Parker Kekison, 184, continued his dominant season, extending his winning streak to 31 matches with an 18-3 technical fall over Dennis Robin. Women's Basketball Ohio State tops Indiana for ninth straight victory out of Columbus, Ohio. J.C. Sheldon scored 25, 25 points, Cody McMahon had 20 points and 7 rebounds, and number 8 Ohio State used a second-half surge to upend number 10 Indiana 74-69 to on Sunday for its ninth consecutive win. The Buckeyes, whose record is 19-3 and 10-1 in the conference, took off in the third quarter, going on a 16-5 run to finish the frame up by 8 points. They led by as many as 14, with 7 minutes 32 seconds left in the game. But a three-minute scoring drought allowed Indiana, whose record is 18-3 and 9-2 and and in the conference, to cut the deficit to eight until a three-pointer from Taylor Thierry at the 3.3-second mark put the Buckeyes back on top by 11. Sarah Scalia led Indiana with 25 points, and Mackenzie Holmes and Yarden Garzen each had 14 points. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, February 5th. 
I think I might have said February 6th at the beginning. Sorry about that. It's February 5th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and you can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.